Christian Fellowship Church. Um, some of you are maybe really excited to move through the book of Numbers. Some of you might be half excited, half skeptical as to how this is going to go. Some of you, maybe you're reading, you're in your Bible plan, you're coming up on Numbers pretty soon, and you remember, man, last time I, it was really hard to get through uh, the book of Numbers. I think probably some, maybe many of you aren't even thinking about what book we're in. You're in here and you're like, I need a word from God. You're struggling with something, maybe something I don't see, maybe something that people right next to you in the seats don't see or don't know. And you want God to speak to you today. And I'm here to tell you, you don't need a dream. You don't need a vision. You don't need a prophet to come to your house and give you a special word. You have a special word. And it is the book of Numbers. I don't want you to skip the book of Numbers. I don't want you to, your eyes to glaze over when you read through the book of Numbers. And I want us to stop complaining when it's a bunch of numbers. So my hope is that you do walk away today encouraged, maybe surprised that God spoke to you through numbers. You remember Paul telling Timothy uh, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable to equip the man of God for every good work. If we've been missing out on numbers, we've been missing out on being equipped. We've been missing out on profit that God has for us, P-R-O-F-I-T, benefit for you. And so we want to get into the book of Numbers. It's a long book. It's in the first five books that come as a set to us, the Torah, the Law, the Pentateuch, whatever you, you might call it. And we've actually walked through Genesis, and we've done Exodus, and we did Leviticus. And now we find ourselves in the book of Numbers, and it is a book about uh, trekking through the wilderness. And as we looked about last time, I almost said last week, that was interesting, uh, but last time we were gathered together, we, we just did an introductory thing with numbers, how to read it with New Testament eyes. And we talked about the fact that the apostles themselves and the Bible itself sees this as an imagery. You're supposed to see it as a, a story that relates to your story. You've been rescued out of bondage, but you're not home yet. We're still strangers in this world. We're like exiled. We're citizens of a kingdom, but that kingdom isn't in full reign yet. And so it's still very much the kingdom of man and invisibly, uh, in many ways visibly, the kingdom of Satan. So we are intruders in this world. We are strangers, and we need to be equipped to survive and thrive in this wilderness time. And that's what this book is about. But interestingly, you're not going to see survival tips like here's how to get food or here's how to get water or here's how to set up camps, here's how to start a fire. It's not a, a, a Bear Grylls book, you know. It is not about how to survive the elements. You're not going to see stuff in here as important as it is about defending yourself against wild animals. And this wilderness that they're in isn't like an arid desert. There's some vegetation, but there's not enough. There's not enough. They're looking forward to a land flowing with milk and honey, right? That's not flowing in the wilderness, but he doesn't give them physical survival tips. Their survival tips are in relation to God himself. 
Here's how you survive me being in your presence. That's what you need to worry about. And so this book is going to take us there. We need that in the background of our minds. And just another helpful tip as we enter into the book of Numbers, some of us maybe shouldn't read through the Bible in a year. Maybe you should read Genesis three times in a row and get familiar with some of these names, some of these characters. Some of us, it's like, you know, you know name Gimli's horse, and it's like, bam, we know it. And it's like, let's learn these characters, not Marvel, Lord of the Rings. That stuff is cool. This is the stuff we need to know. These names shouldn't just be random names. You should kind of track with what the author is saying. And if we can't, that's okay. Pause the Bible reading plan. Go back and read Genesis again. That's all right. Hang out there for a while and learn the stories, learn the names, learn the narrative. Because then we can get into the book of Numbers and see what the value is for us and how we get profit from it as we live our lives. And the import is very practical as we think about how is it that I have been rescued out of my slavery to sin, but I still wrestle with sin. And that entire problem is what we're dealing with here. They've been brought out of Egypt. These people, they often, sometimes they still long for Egypt. We're going to be very disappointed with the Israelites as we move through the book of Numbers. In many ways, they don't get it. And sometimes we find ourselves in the same boat. But just to reiterate, look at verse 1. They are in the wilderness, right? If we were reading this Bible in the Hebrew language, it wouldn't be called Numbers. It would be called in the wilderness. And we see that right there at the top. They'd come out of the land of Egypt. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. And then you see verse 19 there. He says it again. He gave Moses some instructions. Do this. This is what I want you to do. And so Moses did it. Where? In the wilderness, right? So he's bracketing these instructions. You're going to take a count. You're going to take a census. And you're going to do this in the wilderness. This is how I want you to live in the wilderness. This is what we're doing here in the wilderness, in this in-between time where Egypt is behind us, but the promised land is still ahead of us. You're going to follow my instructions, and these instructions are going to help you survive in the wilderness. But again, those instructions aren't, here's how to make a fire, here's how to protect yourself against bad guys. The instructions are, take a count, take a head count. That's what a census is, and that's why we have it as titled the Book of Numbers. He's supposed to take, they're supposed to take a head count, and it's all going to be done by tribes. This is where we start getting lost, and we're like, who's Zebulun? Right? Who's Manasseh? I don't know. That's a lot of numbers in here. It's okay. They don't just take a total head count. They take the head count by tribe. I wish I had time to get into the importance of tribes, but... Uh, God laid this out in these 12 tribes of Israel that will represent God's people for eternity, really. And so they take uh, this head count. You start getting into it. We're not even out of chapter 1. and You start seeing it right there of, of the people of Gad, this many people. The people of Judah, this many people. The people of Issachar, this many people. And you've got all these totals of the men who are of warring age. 20 years and up and able to fight. That's who you're counting. You're not counting everybody else. So this is a lot of people. And we're not going to start doing math and calculating how many people exactly and extrapolating how many you count the women and the children, how many people were there. We don't want to miss the point because the point isn't the actual numbers themselves, but something else. As you're reading through this, 
You want to look for patterns. You want to see things that are there. You might need to see something that is not there. As I was reading through this, the thing that immediately struck me is what is not there. You see 12 tribes listed in chapter 1. But of the 12 tribes, there's a tribe that's missing. So if we were uh, Old Testament geeks, the way many of us are with you know, Marvel or our favorite novel, our favorite you know, uh, Bronte sisters characters, whatever your thing is that you're into, if we knew them well, we'd be like, uh-huh, 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 wait a minute, where's Levi? And then you count it, you're like, well, there's 12 tribes with Levi's missing. How did that happen? Well, you remember when back in Genesis, in the 40s of the chapters of Genesis, uh, Joseph, one of the 12 sons, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Jacob, in a sense, adopted them and gave them the blessing. And sometimes in Scripture, those two boys are counted as one tribe when Levi's in the list. When Levi's not in the list, those two are counted as two separate tribes. That's how we get 12 tribes, but Levi's missing. And if you were good at this and you knew the names and you're like, uh-huh, Zebulun, uh-huh, Joseph, there he is, check it off, the Manasseh, okay, counting that guy's one. Where's Levi? And you'll see that the author of Numbers, Moses, actually pointed out to us that Levi is missing. If you look at chapter 1, uh, and you go through the list, they are naming all of the firstborns, and they start with Reuben, and they go all the way through, and then when you get to verse 47, but the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. That is supposed to be a flag. That's supposed to help you see, okay, something's going on here. Why is one tribe not going to war? Why is one tribe not going to march with the weapons? Why is one tribe not going to infiltrate the land of Canaan? Why is one tribe going to stay back, and why is one tribe not being counted in this enlistment and this recruitment to go fight? Now, some of you uh, may not be as gung-ho about war and fighting, but it wasn't very long ago where many American boys would grow up counting it a privilege to fight. And I know our government has disappointed us so many times, some of us feel like I really... I'm really not feeling that. But this is a time where uh, if you didn't fight, you're a coward, you're a wimp, and an entire tribe is being disallowed to fight. What are they being held back for? They're being held back to take care of furniture. How would you feel? You're not going to go fight. No? No, you get a special privilege. What's that? You're going to break down and carry the table legs. You're going to handle curtains. Oh, that's kind of weird. Look at it in verse 47. The Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe, for the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, the tabernacle is the big tent, right? This is where Moses goes in to commune with God. And over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. It's not weapons and sickles, there's no swords. It's a lampstand, a table, curtains, a veil. They're ready to carry the tabernacle. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. 
When the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. You guys get the sole privilege of breaking everything down and carrying it and then setting it back up. Thanks. An entire tribe just dedicated to that. But, but we want to we fight. Are we wimps or something? No, no, no. Don't you get it? You're in charge of the furniture. Even your able-bodied 25-year-olds, you're in charge of the furnishings. Well, you might think, man, that's pretty lame. These, these, all these tribes, they get out, they go out to fight. They're going to come back with their war stories. Conquered this, conquered that. Their testimonies of fighting giants. And we're going to be like, well, how, you know, how's your week, they'll ask me. And uh, as a Levite, I'll be like, well, today, it's like I almost dropped the veil, but then I didn't. <laughs> That just doesn't seem that great. But the Levites are necessary for a greater danger than the Canaanites. The Levites stand on a wall that's more important than the other 11 or 12 tribes, however you want to count them, stood on. Why? Because of how verse 51 finishes. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, only the Levites. No one else is allowed to do this. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, set up, the Levites are the ones to set up. No one else is supposed to do it. And if anyone else that's not a Levite, any outsider, he's not talking about Canaanites, anyone from any other Israelite tribe comes near, you're dead. And it's not that they would drop dead. The Levites are to put them to death. So suddenly, you realize that the Levites are armed, they do carry swords, but those swords aren't for the Canaanites, those swords are for the Israelites that presume to walk into God's presence. And they're killed on the spot. That's hardcore. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp. Stay in your camp. And each man by his own standard, there's probably a flag, you know, maybe a color that shows that you're of the tribe of Issachar or Zebulun or whatever your tribe flag is, you would put that there. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel, they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Do you see what we're missing when we skip over this and we just want to read Proverbs? When we skip over this and we just want to read you know, John 3.16 or something like that. The danger that is posed to the people is not the wild. It is not animals. It is not even the Canaanites. It is their proximity to God's holiness. And if you get too close, the Levite's job is to cut you down. You might think, oh, why did the Levites get this job? We don't, the Bible doesn't say explicitly. It might be the fact that this is the tribe from which Aaron and Moses come and they get a special position, maybe. But you remember when we were back in Exodus, hopefully you don't have to think that far back because you read your Bibles, but when you're in the book of Exodus and they get to the golden calf incident and Moses comes back down and these people are in full-on rebellion and Moses draws a line in the sand and he's like, everyone that wants to stay with Yahweh, come over here. Well, not everyone crossed over. Some people said, no. I don't care, you were too long in the mountain, I don't care who rescued us out of Egypt, we're going to say it was this golden calf that did it, and we're going to worship this golden calf. 
Moses put the Levites who came over to his, his side in charge of executing 3,000 idolaters who refused to repent. And so Levites get the position of guard duty and execution duty. It's a tough task, I'm sure. The Levites aren't allowed to go in the temple. Only some of the Levites, the sons of Aaron, are able to go into the temple and do temple duties. The Levites are just, they're on guard. And you can tell the way that this is mapped out. If you're reading through this, why is it so repetitive? Why are there so many numbers? Why does it take so long to get to the point? There weren't any pictures or graphs back then. You have to read through it to get it. We're going to put a, a graph up here, a chart up here for you to see. If you read through carefully and took your notes, this is what it would look like. The bottom of the screen is the south, west, east, and north, of course. And you see how the tribes are, are camped out. Some people will put the tribes stacked so the whole thing looks like a cross. But it might, might have been this way. But as you read through, he tells them exactly where to be. He tells them the head count, the numbers that you see there are the fighting uh, men of fighting age. The tabernacle is in the middle. Here's what I want you to notice. This is why I put this up. Between the tribes and the tabernacle is a barrier, those blue rectangles. It's a fence. It's a guard. God is like, I'm going to dwell with you, but don't touch me. You can't touch me. And the Levites are there to protect Israel from getting killed. Let's look at the next slide, which is an, uh, an old painting, uh, I think with some enhancement, the color enhancements there. But, you know, maybe this is similar to what it looked like. In this particular picture, east is the bottom, and that's where Aaron and Moses and the priests would dwell right in front of the camp, the Levites around it, creating this barrier for the rest of the tribes between God's presence and their presence. And for God to dwell with them, he needed guards because of this holiness factor. You'll remember that Jesus taught in Matthew 10. Don't fear those who kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So in other words, the, the task here is not for them to fear uh, Canaan. Fear the one who is over all things. Fear the one who is holy. For those of you who grabbed those R.C. Sproul books on holiness, uh, I think that's a great book to read through as we read through the book of Numbers because we don't tend to appreciate holiness. It's hard to understand this God of love is a God of love, but he's also this God of holiness. And it's not a big jovial Santa Claus that we climb up in his lap, pinch his rosy cheeks, and ask for presents. And our hearts will gravitate toward that kind of image if we don't have scripture passages like this to help us understand what it is that we're dealing with here. That God is holy. I think we can think of it this way. It is not that God is dangerous. It's that we're a danger to ourselves. He's holy and he's always been holy. We're fallen. We're sinful. We're unclean. And we're a danger to ourselves. He put the Levites there not because he might lose his temper and kill people. He put the Levites there because stupid man might get cocky enough to just waltz into God's presence like he's a golden calf. And I'm not a golden calf. I'm not an image. I'm not an animal. Don't carve anything to try to represent me. I'm different than that. 
And so we should approach God's word that way. We get a holy word from God. We should approach his instructions that way as a serious matter. This God is not different. He didn't go, ha just kidding, Jesus time. Jesus is the deliverer and executor of God's wrath in Revelation. Who's riding the white horse? Jesus, right? And so we need to think this is not an Old Testament God. I don't want to hang out there. Hurry up and go to the New Testament. Both Testaments cohere. We see God's love. We see his mercy. We see his grace. We see his holiness all throughout Scripture. But we see here that there's nothing wimpy. There's nothing uh, shameful or anything like that about guard duty. He puts them on guard duty because of wrath, verse 53. Why would he be wrathful? Because these are sinful people. As we move through the book of Numbers, you will see why wrath is there. They complain and they gripe and they don't like God very much. Why does God persist with them? We're going to look at that next week. (laughs) This week we just need to realize he really shouldn't persist with us. (laughs) But he does. And he has to create a way to dwell with man even though man can't handle his holiness. And he does that through the Levites the barrier that the Levites provide. And just in the way that he arranges the camp, you see that they need this barrier, this special buffer between them. And then we're reminded again, after he walks through the arrangement, that in, chapter, in the rest of chapter 1, and going into chapter 2, you see in verses 32 to 33, at the end of chapter 2, here's how you arrange the whole camp. And then he says, these are the people of Israel, right at the end of chapter 2, as listed by their fathers' houses, all those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed. Okay, you said that already. I know. I'm repeating it because that's the point. The Levites were not listed in the camps by their companies or among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they set out each one in his clan according to his father's house. And you go, who cares about how they camped? Who cares about the arrangement? The point is not so much the arrangement. The point is how the arrangement protected Israelites from God's holiness. And we need to go, wow, Do I presume upon God's holiness? Do I take God as sort of a chummy pal that is only there when I need a shoulder to cry on but isn't really ruler, Lord? Do I reckon with His holiness or is it too uncomfortable because it just exposes my lack of holiness? And Numbers is not here to make us comfortable. Numbers is here to help us understand you want to get through this wilderness? Were you really rescued from Egypt? Do you really understand that you were a slave to sin and you've been brought out into a relationship with God? You don't understand it if God is kind of a hobbish figure that clowns around, ignores sin. No. It's much more serious than that. So now we're like, okay, I see why the Levites were exempted. They didn't go off to war They did a different kind of duty. They had a guard duty. And this was a dangerous duty. Right at the top of chapter 3, you remember Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, his oldest two sons, they offered fire that was not authorized, and they died on the spot. 
We saw that when we walked through the book of Exodus. But they're Aaron's sons, they're the old, doesn't matter. But they did offer fire, they just didn't offer the fire that God said. Well, that's how the fall started, taking something that God said and just twisting a little bit. Eh, did God really say this fire? They offer that fire, who cares? Shave off a few minutes, who knows, maybe they were in a rush. They did something different. And to communicate God's pure holiness, none of this sort of compromise, just kind of a little this, a little that, not a little this, little that. He's holy, and Nadab and Abihu uh, sort of stepped on that holiness in verse 4. They died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire. He's reminding us of when that happened to help you see the seriousness of why you need the Levites there, why you need the priests there, and that their job is a dangerous job. When you read chapter 3, verses 5 to 10, the word guard is there four times. And they're not there to guard against theft. Now, when we think of guards, we think of guards keeping people out so they don't come in and steal stuff. This, these guards are there to keep people out so that they don't die. So they're there to protect the people, not from Canaan, but from themselves and their own waywardness against God. And chapter 3 gives specific duties to the three sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Those are the camps that are around the temple as we saw up there. And repeatedly we're told they're given guard duty. Gershon's tribe is given guard duty in 325. Kohath is given guard duty in 228, 231, 232. And Merari is given guard duty in verse 36. And then again, they, uh, Moses reminds us in 338 that this guard duty is for protection. You read through these first chapters of Numbers at a slow pace, and you're just, what is repeated? What is emphasized? You start picking up on to guard them, to guard them, to guard the temple, to guard the ministers, to guard the priests because of death and holiness. And then you've got this weird <clears throat> exchange uh, between the Levites and the firstborn of Israel. And I've been trying to think, like, how do I do this in a way that doesn't just make it into a whole other sermon? Uh, but it is here in this passage at the end of chapter 1, your little rubric, your little heading might even say, you know, the Levites exempted or something like that. Uh, not only are they exempted, but when you get to uh, chapter 3, you see that they are to be, uh, in a sense, exchanged. In 3:11 to 13, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I've taken the Levites from among the people of Israel. Again, what is the, Moses trying to emphasize here? The, the important role of the Levites. That's the point of these first four chapters. Behold, I've taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine, I am the Lord. So what's happening there? You remember in Exodus, how did they get out that final plague where Pharaoh was like, forget it. You know, just let these people leave. It's when God struck down all the firstborn. Now imagine all the households represented here. Who's the firstborn child in your house? Dead, like that. Unless, 
unless you take the innocent life of another animal, of an animal, not another animal, but of an animal, to represent the life of your firstborn child, and take the blood of that innocent animal and put that blood on the doorpost, that blood covers your house, and if that innocent blood covers your house, that angel of death passes over and saves your firstborn. But then God is like, but that firstborn is mine now. I own it. So when God redeems, he owns. He doesn't redeem people to let them live and be free you know, butterflies and go do what they want. He frees people to be his. He frees people for ownership. You're the sheep, he's the shepherd, and he brings you into this relationship that actually has structure to it. There's a responsibility to it. And so what he's communicating here is, you remember back when that Passover, that first Passover happened, all those firstborn are mine? I know that's a really difficult weight to carry. Every firstborn from every family and every clan and every tribe is dedicated to temple work. Well, no, 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 they're going to go fight in Canaan. But I thought you said they were yours. They are, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to exchange them for the Levites. Not only do the Levites protect you from getting killed by God's presence because of your own sin, the Levites also protect your firstborn from having to leave the house for special duties. We'll take the duty, you keep the firstborn. How are the Levites looking now? Pretty important. Not by their own merit, but totally by God's choice. When you get to the end of chapter 3, this whole redemption of the firstborn, that's the, and it's, it's to, the, to the number. I mean, there's 222,273 firstborn males at the end of verse 43, but there's only 22,000 Levites. So how do you cover the extra 273? They have a shekel system, and they pay for it. Pretty precise. I don't think this is a fairy tale. I think this is this historical detail, like, okay, but the numbers don't work. And God comes up with a system to make it work. Why? Because God wants to cover the firstborn by substituting them with the Levites. The Levites protect them in more than one way. And every time they think about Passover, they can look across the table and go, this firstborn may not be here if it weren't for a Levite going and doing the work for him in the temple. And so think of so many ways that Passover would remind them how God protected them, but somebody else had to do something for their protection. Somebody else has to do the duty that you can't do so that you don't have to do it. Passover is about substitution. God doesn't just pass over like, meh. Death has to occur, but someone else takes the death so you can sit at the table and enjoy the feast. That's amazing. Last thing I want to point out. As you're reading through these first four chapters, it gets into the specific duties of those Levite clans uh, from Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And then it starts with Kohath because they kind of get the, the super, the most holy things. Quick walkthrough of chapter four. And here's how, what I want to ask you. When you're reading through the Bible... Remember I said sometimes you want to look for something that's missing to give you a clue what the author is trying to get you to pay attention to. Now I want you, as I walk through this really quickly with you, I want you to think of what, not as what is missing, but what is there over and over again. What is repeated over and over again, and I'm going to quiz you. Okay? All right, chapter 4. 
It starts with the Kohathites, and it goes for kind of a long time on the Kohathites and what they're supposed to do. But here's their duties when they are supposed to march. They're not going to just hang out in the wilderness. They're supposed to march and go attack Canaan. Uh, and when they march, they have to break the tabernacle down and carry the tabernacle pieces with them. And the Kohathites have to handle the most holy things. And in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, Moses tells them that they need to take the veil and use the veil to cover the ark. And then once they cover the ark with the veil, they need to cover that with goatskin. And then once they cover that with the goatskin, they cover that with a blue cloth. Then in verses 7 through 8, they take the table of presents and they cover the table of presents with blue cloth. Once they've covered the table of presents with blue cloth, they put the vessels on it and then they cover that with scarlet cloth. And once they cover the vessels with scarlet cloth that is on top of the table of presents that's covered with blue cloth, they cover all of that with goat skins. In 9 through 10, they take the lampstand and the related items and they cover that with scarlet cloth. And then after they cover that with scarlet cloth, they cover that with goatskin. In, ch- in verse 11, they take the golden altar and they cover that with blue cloth. And then once they cover the golden altar with blue cloth, they cover that with goatskin. In verse 11, they take the vessels and they cover the vessels in blue cloth. And once they cover the vessels in blue cloth, they cover that with goatskin. Verses 13 and 14, they take the ashes and they cover the ashes with a purple cloth. And then they put the utensils on that, and then they cover that with goatskin. When you get to verse 15, he says, I need to find it here, because it says, list the sons of Levi by house, or 415, sorry. Chapter 4, verse 15. He says, when Aaron and his sons have finished Covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. As I walked you through that, if you could say one word is the key word, what word is it? Cover. Cover this, cover this, cover this, cover this, and once you cover it, cover it. Take this and cover it. Take that and cover it. Cover it with this, cover it with that. Cover, cover, cover. And then verse 15, it's the covering. Why are the coverings so important? So they don't touch the holy things and die. Interestingly, they, they have these colored cloths, and those colored cloths are covered with goatskin. Only one of them has the goatskin underneath the colored cloth, and that's the ark. And so as they're moving through, if you had a you know, an aerial view of them marching, you would just see one exposed colored cloth and knowing that's the ark, that's God's presence right there. But everything is covered in these cloths, covered in these skins, so that they wouldn't die. You think about when you're getting ready for a move and you take the most fragile things and those are the things you wrap the most, you bubble tape, bubble wrap, you know, blankets, whatever you need to put in there, the most fragile things. The most holy things are wrapped, sometimes double-wrapped, triple-wrapped. But it's not because the things are fragile. It's because we are. These coverings are not there to protect the items. These coverings are there to protect the people that are around the items, that are carrying the items. 
interestingly, in verses 17 to 20 of, of chapter 4. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites. In other words, the Kohathites have the most holy things, the things that need to be most covered, and they're carrying them, slipping the poles carefully through the rings that carry the thing and just making sure that the cloth covers everything. They can't see it. They can't touch it. They don't, they're not careful. They'll be destroyed, verse 18. And God, in his mercy, is saying, look, to Moses and Aaron, he's saying, don't let the Kohathites get killed doing this job. But deal with them this way so that they'll live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. God is like, I don't want them to die. You just need to train them to do it right. And he says, for them not to die when they come close, he said, Aaron and his sons will go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. And so for a second, you're like, well, I thought the covering was to not touch it, and now you're kind of adding look. No, 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 he adds it. Don't touch it, don't look at it, and you can see man's temptation. What if I just get a glimpse? He's like, no, not even for a moment. In the Hebrew, it says not even for a gulp. In other words, the length of time that it takes to swallow, not even that long. We say blink of an eye, they say gulp. I think gulp is better because don't you gulp when you're in front of something that's a little scary. And he's saying, don't even look at it for a swallow because they will die in just a glance. So train them to not touch, to keep things covered, and to not look at it because if they look at it, or touch it, they can't continue with life. Interestingly, the Kohathites get all these verses, all these coverings. The word covers there numerous times, over and over again. We pointed all of them out. And then the Gershonites, covering is mentioned twice. And then for the tribe of Merari, covering isn't mentioned at all. Why? Because the Kohathites are in the thick of it. They're in the middle. And then the Gershonites are like the next level. And then Merari is the next level. The closer you get to God, the more dangerous. The farther away, the less dangerous as the camp is laid out. What's the point of all this? Here's the point. When we recognize our own fallenness, then we can appreciate God's efforts to dwell with us. When we recognize... uh, our own deadly sinfulness. We, we cut ourselves off from the source of life, yet somehow God has made a way for us to have life in him. And we can't appreciate that life until we, we see what it took, what it takes. And in the Old Testament, all these symbols, all these pointers point in one direction. You've got the Levites, the priests, the coverings, the veil, the, the bloody sacrifices, the offerings, the meal offerings. They all point to one thing, not many things, one thing. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb so you can sit at the table and feast. So you can have life. He's the bread. He's the manna. He's the water from the rock. He's the cloud covering. He's the protector, the refuge. He's the Levite. He's the priest. He's the barrier on guard duty to keep you in relationship with God. Not just so that you don't die, but positively so that you have life and extract all the benefits and profit from being in relationship with God. It is through Jesus Christ. So if you're in here and you're like, I don't deserve it, good. That's what the book of Numbers is teaching us. 
whatever your background, we all have something in common. If we touch God's holiness, we're dead. You might be like, you don't understand what I did. Maybe not. It doesn't matter. I cannot enter into God's presence outside of Christ. So if you're in here this morning and you feel like God is distant, welcome to the club. How do you get into a relationship with God? By faith in Jesus Christ. We repent of our waywardness and we cling to the ultimate priest who's Jesus Christ himself. Now some people think we don't want to kind of downplay the scariness of God so that people can see that he's loving. No, I think you need to reckon with the scariness of God so that you can see how loving he is. When we think we are kind of deserving of God's love, why wouldn't he love me? He's a God of love. That's another way of going, why wouldn't he love me? I'm lovable. As long as somebody else has any kind of love in their heart, they love me. No, no, what the Bible communicates is as loving as God is, he's holy and he's just. And if he's holy and he's just, I cannot be in communion with him. That is a problem. When you're reading through the book of Numbers, you're supposed to be going, how in the world does God dwell with a wicked people? He's not with them because they're great. He's not with them because they're righteous. They're as wicked as the Canaanites they're going to go conquer in many ways. Of course, the wickedness of the Canaanites has risen to levels where they, it is time for them to receive uh, their punishment. But he's not with Israel because they've earned it. He's not with Israel because they're lovable. He makes a way, and one of the ways he communicates how he's doing it is through the presence of these Levites and these priests. One story that... Uh, I've read to some of my kids, one of my kids is reading it now, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, and you may have heard this many times, but a children's story that C.S. Lewis wrote, and of course, I don't think it's a spoiler, you know, these are symbols and they represent our journey, and they, these kids represent sort of us, right? They're in this winter land, it's always winter, never Christmas, it's terrible, it's ruled by this icy, cold uh, witch queen, but they're hopeful that Aslan is coming. And the kids are like, Aslan, who's that? And Mr. Beaver, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. And if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe? asked Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
We look at these elements and that shattered bread and that cup that represents the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. We don't presume upon God's grace. We realize I, I shouldn't have it. I have no business touching even the hem of Christ's garment. But he made a way. It's the ultimate Levite, that ultimate guard on duty so that I don't die. Not just so that I don't die, but so that I can have life. And so if you're in here this morning and you've trusted Jesus Christ, you've repented of your waywardness, your sinfulness, your unholiness, we all share that disease of fallenness and rebellion. And you've confessed that and you've embraced Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as that great King uh, who's also your great priest. And you are welcome to the table this morning. Uh, on the one side of the table, we have, of course, the bread uh, and uh, the cup. They're in here, right? Okay. <laughs> the bread and the cup. And you will come up and you will take one cup with a piece of bread, one cup with uh, the, the juice. And uh, the cups that are in the juice tray are the gluten-free. If that's a thing for you, then grab one of those center ones. Uh, but you'll take one uh, of each of those by coming up the middle aisle and then re taking your elements and going back to your seat using the outer aisle so that we're not passing in front of each other. And by the way, we did that before COVID. That's just a don't bump into each other kind of thing. Um, but uh, as you do that, uh, I want to remind you that this is a worshipful act, and we want, us, we want to think about the fact that were it not for these, what this represents, now this is not magic, this represents, this is symbolic of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And as we hold that bread and we hold that cup, we, we need to be thinking about examining our hearts, and we need to be thinking about uh, you know, the fact that I don't want to presume upon God's grace. I want to accept it completely by faith. So as you're able, I ask you to stand. Uh, Jacob will come and uh, play softly for us. And when you're ready, come on up and approach one side of the table. Take your elements. And uh, as you return your seat, be prayerful as we await taking it together. We'll all take it together in just a couple moments.